This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. Uh, one of these days, Sam, I'm going to have something different to say there, uh, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like I, it's like I have this patter that I do at the beginning, and I'm like, as he always is, as he always does. I'm like, maybe I should just like tell people if something has changed, folks. Unless you hear a different, assume that it's going to be Sam and I. Um, but uh, we are continuing with our series, desiring the kingdom. Uh, this week we are coming to First uh, Kings chapter 17, and we get to meet one of the most interesting characters of the Old Testament. We are introduced, or we meet for the first time in this series at least, the prophet Elijah. Um, Sam, if I was going to ask you to describe to somebody listening who maybe isn't really familiar with Old Testament Bible characters, you know, they, they, they know Elijah was a prophet, they know mm-hmm. that much, but they don't really know much about him. How would you describe Elijah to somebody that hadn't heard about him? Man, he stands in the Old Testament as this really, really major figure that comes out of nowhere. And it's, you know, I've heard you say it, you know, that he's like, this is like the Wild West gunslinger who comes to town, you know, who seems like the unbelievably uh, overwhelmed underdog. And he just is absolutely bold to go stand in front of the enemy uh, trusting that God is going to bring him victory. He's, he's this incredible figure. Um, at a time when Israel is at its most wicked, uh, here comes a, a prophet who is for sure one of the greatest prophets in the history of all of God's redemptive plan. And yet he um, didn't write a book, right? We don't have the book of Elijah anywhere. He just, he's featured in other, in other right. history books. Yeah. That's right. So he just, he shows up in the history books and he's this unbelievable figure, super, um, zealous, I think yeah. is a good word to describe Elijah. That is a good word. Yeah. So let's, you say it's a particularly wicked time in mm-hmm. the life of the nation of Israel. I'd like to read Three verses from last the chapter that we didn't get to last week, sixteen the, at the very end of chapter sixteen, just to set the stage for this is this is the world Elijah's coming into. First uh, Kings chapter sixteen verses thirty to thirty three. They're going to tell you about this guy Ahab, and Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab, this is the sentence that tells you right here, folks. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And that, that's talent. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, <clears throat> to to be. And by the way, his father Omri, it said the same thing about him that he was the worst, and Ahab yes. ups his game and outperforms his father in terms of wickedness. Yeah, and, and as if it was a light thing for him to do what Jeroboam did. It's like I just Jeroboam, <laughs> Jeroboam was an amateur. Watch yeah. me. <laughs> Yeah, hold my beer. Yeah, exactly. So this is the world into which Elijah enters. He's going to come and he's going to confront Ahab, king of Israel. And the another piece of information that would be good for people to understand is, you know, Elijah's going to come in and he's going to prophesy a drought. Why is that significant in terms of the Baal worshipers? What's the what is it that people need to know to make sense of that context wise? Why is that a big deal? Well, just as a little bit of a backstory before I answer that that question, when Jeroboam takes over, so he's the first king of the northern kingdom, right? The ten after, tribes of the north it splits, right? Yeah. We had talked about this, and I keep mispronouncing the word, but he pulls this kind of syncretism where he's bringing in, you know, the worship of Yahweh, but marrying it with some other f- pagan faiths, and he kind of comes up with this amalgamation of this unique faith that he tries to claim for his northern kingdom. By the time you get to Ahab, Ahab has utterly shaken off any of these vestiges of worshiping Yahweh. He is entirely devoted to the worship of Baal and Asherah. He's not even trying to find some common ground to merge these different faiths. In fact, we're going to learn he and Jezebel go around and they put to death Anybody who is advocating for Yahweh. And so when Ahab and Jezebel lift up Baal and then Elijah shows up and says, I'm going to take away uh, rain and dew. The Lord is not going to give you any water. The reason why that would have been a showdown between Yahweh and Baal is Baal was considered to be the god of the sky, the god of the storm. He's the one who brings the rains and weather. And so Elijah, this lone prophet, shows up in front of, of Ahab and says, as Yahweh, when it, when it says Lord, when you're reading your Bible and you find Lord written in all caps, Whenever it says it that way, that's Yahweh. As Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. And so here's this prophet standing in the place of Yahweh saying, I'm shutting off the water. Yeah. Let Baal do something about it. Um, And I also think it's interesting that right up front, he says, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years it's like right from the beginning elijah's letting them know if you haven't been storing up water in your reservoirs it's already Mm -hmm. too late Mm -hmm. (laughs) and there's not going to be any water for a while yeah and these are this is this is an area of the world where you don't get torrential rains to start with and so you're super dependent on the seasons when that bring rain and so when he says it's not, you're not going to get seasons of rain. In fact, it's you're going to skip the seasons. It's going to be years. And so the idea that you're going to be able to survive, you know, you can you can maybe miss a rain season and recover. You miss one or two, uh, you're in trouble. But it's talking about years going through, and which is a guarantee that all of your crops and everything that you have worked uh, to plant and plow and seed and all that stuff. Is going to be dead. It is not going to bring forth life. So yeah. buckle up. You are about to go into intense poverty and suffering. Yeah. 
So after Elijah makes that statement to Ahab, it says the word of the Lord came to him and tells him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kerith or Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there, which is a supernatural DoorDash kind of raven delivery service. <laughs> so he, Elijah, went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, it says, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. When I was studying this passage for you know doing personal worship study notes and so forth, I was really struck by the fact that Elijah was not able to avoid the hardship of the land in which he dwelled. It's like God was making because let's let's be clear here. God provided for him in terms of food supernaturally. He didn't he didn't there was you know, he didn't need to worry about food. The ravens were bringing him bread and meat. Mm-hmm. So God could have provided him water as well had God wanted to remember strike the rock with Moses and the water Mm -hmm. comes out so God can make water show up if God wants water to show up and yet the brook dried up Elijah was you know was part of the hardship of the land he wasn't exempt from it now and I know that God is using this also to relocate Elijah where he wants him to go next Mm -hmm. but I was struck by that because there's also a, a, a sense I get sometimes when I'm talking to other Christians that they believe that for some reason they're going to be spared from mm-hmm. the natural consequences going on in the land in which they live. And I'm like, where do you get that from? Where, I mean, where do you get from that God is going to protect you from yourselves and from everything that's going, going on around you? You know, the fact of the matter is that if you live in a wicked country, Wicked things are going to happen, and you're not going to be exempt from the fallout and the consequences Mm -hmm. of that. It's going to affect all of us. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the most faithful prophets, I mean, you you can go through the scriptures, and the ones that come to mind, you know, they didn't have charmed lives of uninterrupted prosperity. Um, They had real-life grief over what was going on in their nation. They were persecuted. You know, Jesus talks about how – you know, the Lord, he had sent so many prophets to Israel, and what did they do with them? They stoned the prophets Killed that the God prophets, sent yeah. to them. And so these people who were the most faithful to the Lord are certainly, absolutely certainly not immune to suffering. But what you learn from the scriptures is that God forges them into even more powerful forces through the suffering. And these people find that even in the midst of the suffering, God is the one who satisfies and gives them everything they need so that circumstances of the world can't rip that away from them. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite things with Paul in the New Testament, and I have a lot of favorite things with Paul. No no kidding, right? Yeah. Um, I have a lot of favorite things with Paul. But one of my very favorite things is when he describes all of the things that he'd been through. You know, I, I was I – was, beaten with rods and lash, I shipwrecked. And he goes through the whole big long list of things Mm -hmm. that have happened to him in his service to God. And you're, you're reading that and you're like, wow, he got, you know, 39 lashes minus one, three times he was stoned. Just all these different things that he went through as, you know, in his, in his ministry, these, and, and then he refers to them as, not even being worth comparing yeah. to the glory that is to be revealed. It's like yeah. I, I'm, I was so struck by that when I read it, yeah. Sam, because it's not like he's going, that was all really hard, man. It was tough. I mean, we were crushed. We were destroyed. We despaired of our life. 
But on balance, all things taken into consideration, it's still worth it. Mm-hmm. That's not what he says. He's like, it's not even worth comparing <laughs> all of this. And he does say, we were crushed. We, we despaired of life itself. Mm-hmm. And he says, that's not even worth comparing. Yeah, he calls them light and momentary afflictions. Like, <laughs> I face, you know, a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of the kind of suffering that Paul faced. And I don't consider them light and momentary <laughs> afflictions, you know. And so when the closer you draw near to the Lord and the more you see his glory and the more you revel in his love and the more you're amazed by grace and the more you look to the hope of heaven and all that it offers, all these things that come at us day in and day out become truly light and momentary afflictions. They're not worthy to be compared to what's in store for us. Yeah. Um, and that's why, you know, it's so important for the Christian in the good seasons to be storing up the treasure of God's word, to be meditating on his goodness and how much he loves us and what's in store for us and the hope of heaven so that when those hard seasons come, you're able to walk through them with some perspective of who God is and what he's going to do through this, even if you can't understand it. Right. You know ultimately where he's going with this. And I mean, that was something that Jesus told them was to lay up their treasures in heaven mm-hmm. because that's the place where they wouldn't be destroyed by the circumstances that are natural down here on earth. So, you know, that's a message to all of us is that we should be investing in the eternal. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's here in the brook and, you know, these ravens are supplying it. Now, did he have the Raven app on his staff? Do you think? What, <laughs> yeah. How do you imagine that location took place? services shared? Yes. <laughs> how do you imagine that that went down? Because I've heard, I, I did read one commentary, Sam, where the guy was trying to offer a naturalistic explanation for this. Instead of making it supernatural, he talked about how ravens would bring this food back, and that they would nest in the clefts of the rock, and they would <laughs> store their food, and that Elijah would climb up and get there, and it. it totally took away all of the supernatural element of that i'm guessing that's not how it happened (laughs) it's so it's just so dumb when people try to do that with the miraculous it's like there's no room for the supernatural with god we must come up with a way that this happened naturally yeah um i'd read another commentary that says well actually the the word ravens and hebrews were really close to the word for arabs so this probably wasn't birds it was arabs bringing (laughs) bread meat and it's like, no, the whole point of this is God is sending a message, and he's sending a very shocking message, actually. So here you have this prophet, right, who shows up, and he is trying to call Israel back to faithfulness. Right. And he, God puts him outside of Israel on the, the east side of the Jordan in this remote area where there's nothing but this brook and ravens are bringing him food. Now, there's a whole lot that's going on here. Ravens and the law are one of the unclean animals. And so now I want you to imagine God is using a raven, which, by the way, every culture throughout history looks at the raven as an omen of death. That goes all the way back to the flood when when Noah sent out a raven as the first bird, and the raven just kind of bails on him. You yeah. know, and then he sends out the dove twice. And hope is announced when the the dove comes back with an olive branch. But the raven is emblematic of death. That's true of all cultures. Edgar Allan Poe knows all about it. Like, it's <laughs> it's death. It's an omen of death. And here you have an omen of death who's bringing him life. You have an unclean creature, 
who is coming to feed the prophet. And Spurgeon, I love what he does with this, but when Spurgeon preached on this passage, he says, you know, what is God trying to communicate here? That he has this unclean creature that Elijah is now absolutely entirely dependent upon for life. And he says, Spurgeon says, I thank God that he uses unclean vessels to bring life to the world because that's my job. <laughs> you know, I am that unclean vessel wow. that comes to bring life to the world. And so here God's it's it's stunning, you know, oh my goodness, here's this prophet of God who's being fed by a raven. And we don't hear that as, you know, shocking, but I want you to imagine like because we don't look at ravens and go, oh my gosh, they're so unclean. But if I were to say to you, Hey, every morning and every night, I'm going to have a rat climb up with a chunk of flesh in its mouth and some bread in its paws, and he's going to drop them off, and you're going to eat what the rat has just spit up for you. <laughs> you know, now it's like, oh man, bon appetit. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the way that an Israelite in the ancient world would have looked at a raven, an unclean rat with wings. Mm-hmm. And God is using this to bring him life. And I, one of the other things that's stunning about this story, um, whenever I'm studying the scripture, like you, I get on these rabbit trails where I go off and start studying something. So I Squirrel. did a whole bunch of reading. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> so I did a whole bunch of reading on ravens. And, you know, they're, they're scavenger birds, which I knew, but they're incredibly smart. Like they talk like parrots. You can train them. I mean, so anyway, all that aside – one of the things that it talked about is they are an incredibly brilliant bird that goes to great lengths to protect whatever food that it has. It will scheme and do things to protect what it gets or an animal or a carcass or whatever. And so when God says that ravens are bringing him flesh, like how supernatural does that have to be that a scavenger bird is ripping meat off of whatever animal – putting it in its beak and flying to Elijah and having the discipline and obedience to the command of God to not gulp that meat down on the way. Yeah. And in a sense, what God is communicating here is the raven is absolutely obedient to me at my command. Mm. And why is Elijah in this wilderness to begin with? Because my people are not. So he can command an unclean bird to be perfectly obedient and resist the desire to swallow down that meat. And yet his own people are in full-on rebellion against him, refusing obedience at every turn. Yeah. You know, it's like, God, how many ravens were there? There were as many ravens as there needed to be. You know, <laughs> yeah. God was able to bring whatever ravens he needed. And if there weren't enough ravens around, God could have made a few more. I'm just, you know, there's, he had all the ravens that he, this was definitely the, the, uh, Israel airlift here with the ravens going into. <laughs> yeah. So, so this whole chapter, it's setting this up with this omen of death bringing life because this, the beginning, the introduction of Elijah, is God sending a message that he is bringing life to a place that is falling desperately into the abyss of death. Yeah. So um, verse 8 tells us, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. And I want to stop for just a second and point out that Sidon was the uh, – was, was one of two city regions that, was, that were capitals of Phoenicia – and it was where Jezebel's dad reigned as king. 
So he's basically sending him to a place where anything notable that happens with Elijah and is associated with Elijah, any news of Elijah would get back to Jezebel. You know, it's like, I, and it, mm-hmm. not instantly. They didn't have text messages. Nobody could WhatsApp or Instagram pictures of Elijah. But I, you know, it was sending Elijah out of Israel and into the heart of Baal country, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like, that is the place. So you have to get a picture of that. This is not like, okay, you know, God sent me from Davie up to Deerfield Beach. <laughs> right. No. It's like he's sending him into the heart of enemy territory. Yeah. I mean, and we're told Jezebel is the daughter of a guy. And what is his name? It's Eth Baal. So Eth Baal. So the man of Baal, I think. Or no, it's not man of Baal. It's pressing toward Baal is what that even means. So yeah. the, her dad's name is idolatrous. Yep. And so this is like the hot spot. And a, <laughs> the Lord is like, okay, we are – all of this whole country knows that there's this contest between Yahweh and Baal. They're already angry. If they find you, Elijah, they know that your word is what will bring the rain because that's what you said. So they are going to be hunting for you. Yep. And if they find you, you can expect to undergo torture until they get that word out of your mouth. You are a wanted, wanted man. And now I want you to go to the very heart <laughs> of Baal worship. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's like oh. he is sending him into the 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 belly of the beast. Yes. I mean, it's – so And Elijah, one of the things you'll notice, especially in this chapter, is it follows a pattern. The word of the Lord came and said, and God gives the command, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. And then as immediately, verse 10 is, so he arose and went to Zarephath. Elijah, you'll find, has this exacting obedience, which again – is altogether unique, you know. Yeah. Like that's not normal of Israel. There, it's one rebellious, disobedient person after the next. And here, God says, "Do X, Y, Z," and Elijah does exactly X, Y, Z. Yeah, um, and shows up at Zarephath. And I don't mean to give a spoiler alert, but next week we're going to see that in fact they were hunting for. Yeah. <laughs> for Elijah ever that Ahab turned the country upside down and the surrounding areas. It's like mm-hmm. and they were looking for Elijah. And I'm sure if they had found him, they would have said, listen, we need you to say that word to bring the rain back. <laughs> you don't want to say it. I'd like you to meet my friend executioner and his, yeah. his, his lieutenant torturer. And they're going to be working with you for a while to see if they can't <laughs> persuade you. Uh, that kind of thing. So for uh, sure. Now, when he says go to which belongs to Sidon, dwell there. There's a, there's a phrase there. He says, "Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you." I was mm-hmm. also struck by that as mm-hmm. I was studying because I thought, what a paradigm shift! Because all through the Bible, everywhere we're told we take care of the widows. That's mm-hmm. what we're supposed to do. That's what James says. True religion is is a religion that takes care of the widows and the orphans. We're told through scripture time and time and time again, you take care of the widows. And so here God is taking one of the least, one of those people mm-hmm. that we're supposed to take care of and saying, I'm going to take care of you through them. Mm-hmm. It's just like this. It's, it's as much of a paradigm shift in my mind as the ravens were. He was feeding him with these unclean animals. Mm-hmm. Now he's providing for him through a woman who should have nothing to be able to provide for him with. Mm-hmm. And what again, what do you find in both of those pictures, the raven and the widow? Well, one, they're both associated with death. In the ancient world, and this was something that was 
just ab- remarkably cruel in the ancient world, but a widow was seen as cursed, you know, that she, that her husband had died before her and somehow this was God's judgment upon the widow. And so in the ancient world and many cultures, including this region, she was seen as cursed. She had no rights. Widows had very little power to earn. They were utterly powerless, right? And so I think – not only do you have this association with death looming with a raven and a widow, but you also have this unbelievably humbling. You know, so God tells him, "Go to this brook, and I'm going to have unclean rats with wings bringing you your food." How humbling for a prophet of God to have to hear that and accept that from the hand of God. And now he's being commanded, "I want you to go and allow a widow to feed you." And we think, well, that's, that's, that sounds wrong. But I want you to imagine as a man of God, God says, I want you to go, you know, I'll give you a different example, but I want you to go to the homeless shelter and beg from the homeless. Yeah. I want you to go to somebody who's thoroughly disadvantaged and I want you to be underneath them. I want right. you to be underneath their charity. And one of the things you, you think, oh, this sounds wrong. I don't like this and I don't like it either. <laughs> but I think one of the things that God is doing is he's taking a prophet and he's humbling them. Yep. He's forcing him to realize you are needy. You're needy beyond the widow. Yep. I mean, this is something that this has been a theme that we've repeated now over and over in so many different podcasts and theories. The very first sin, pride. Mm-hmm. The basis of all virtue, humility. Absolutely. It's like the Bible is full from one end to the other of the story of God humbling prideful people. Because pride is something that he hates because it's the thing that makes us feel like we're entitled and that's what makes us into professional victims. Mm-hmm. If you are, you know, if you, there's nobody out there who has a sense of entitlement and a, a highly defend, you know, develop, you know, air of victimhood, then it's not coming from a position of pride. I don't deserve mm-hmm. this. I deserve mm-hmm. better than this. This isn't fair to me. That kind of thing. And so, that's you're absolutely right. This was something where Elijah was going to have to go. Wow, I'm going to have to like really humble myself here. Mm-hmm. And I want to also set the stage here a little bit by telling people what kind of you know like when we think of a widow. A lot of times we have a picture of this elderly woman whose husband has died or whatever. That's not this case because this widow has a son and she's still caring for the son. Mm-hmm. If this was an if this was a widow that had a family and her husband had died and she was in her old age, her her son absolutely would have taken care of her. No question that that her family would be provided for. So this is a young widow, Sam. This is somebody that that is of childbearing age, still has a young child with her. Mm-hmm. So as you say, they perceive this curse. In this case, absolutely, because this is somebody whose husband died before his time. Yeah. So, you know, that's just, a, again, just kind of adding to that a little bit. Yeah, when you get into the story of Ruth, you see how God heightens their desperation because Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, loses her husband and her sons. There's no provider. So in that story, it's just Naomi and Ruth. It heightens the desperation because in the ancient world, a widow, as we talked about, was seen as cursed. But if you didn't have a man to take care of you, you were tremendously vulnerable economically, uh, politically, you had no power, um, so you were totally subject to the to the men of right. that time. It was a terrifying place to be. So he, he it says he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, "Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink." 
And as she was going to bring it, this is interesting. He called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Like one more thing. It's like, okay, would you bring me some water? That, that, by the way, was not unusual for a traveler to come into a town in the ancient world. It was dry. It was harsh. This was desert territory. And they would see somebody that, you know, had a well. They would ask for water. That was like a thing. Like mm-hmm. you come into a town, you'd ask for water. And it was like the absolute, you know, floor, just the low threshold of hospitality that you would offer water to travelers. But this was in a time of great drought mm-hmm. and famine because there was no rain and there was no water because Yahweh had shut the tap off. And so it was a, it was a bold request to begin with. It's like, bring me some water. She's like, do you know what this is worth around here right now? Have you been reading the newspaper? Do you know what Yahweh's doing? And then as she's doing that, he says, oh, and while you're doing that, bring me something to eat. <laughs> so it, it kind of makes you go, uh, Elijah, shut up. Yeah. Like, no, don't do that. And then she, she responds to him. And I kind of perceive this in my mind as a little bit. I don't know whether it was like resignation or whether it was sarcastic anger or whatever, but this is her response. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, which, by the way, is a politeness in ancient culture, you would swear by the deity of the person you were talking to. That was considered polite. So she's not saying I'm a follower of Yahweh at this point. Mm-hmm. I think she certainly becomes that. But yeah. that's not where she is right now. So she's yeah. saying Notice the, the Lord, your God, your God lives. I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Now, I don't know whether that's resign. I could, I could hear that two ways. I could hear that as resignation, like, look, <laughs> we're about to starve to death, okay? You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I could also hear it as, what? <laughs> you know, it's like, I barely have enough to give us our last meal, and you want me to bring you some food? So I don't really know which way to take that. As I project myself into it, though, at this point, I I see it probably more on the resignation side because mm-hmm. Elijah tells her, do not fear. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's definitely a buzz off in addition to that. But I think the buzz off is sourced by the resignation. Like, yeah. look, man, we only have enough for one more meal and then we're going to die. I can't share this with you. Right. So Elijah tells her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it. And bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. I, you know... Reading that, what he told her to do, he, first he tells her, don't fear, okay? And then he says, God's going to take care of you. He, he tells her that. But first, before God takes care of her, he asks her, break me that cake. It's like, first I want you to do something. No, well, it's like, show a little faith here. The Lord God is going to take care of you. The Lord is going to provide for you. I want you to believe that, and I want you to show me you believe that 
by and it it I admit mm-hmm. I'm veering close to the prosperity gospel here. I'm starting it's starting to sound like Mark <laughs> in just a minute, you're gonna tell me, send in your dollar and you'll get a hundred dollars back. Plant your seed of faith. But there is a certain sense in which this I think this was a little bit of a test. Mm-hmm. It's like he's saying to the widow, do this for me first, and don't worry, because God's gonna take care of you. And she had to take that on faith. Yeah. You know, one of the things and I'm going to be careful how I say this, but when Elijah comes and he's required to go and receive from the hand of a widow and prior to this from the hand of a raven, I think the biggest temptation for a prophet is for it to become about me. And so, like, you know, look at me and my word and what I did and I'm withholding the rain and all of this kind of stuff. And so God is constantly calling him to lay down his reputation and to – embrace the humility of being underneath a widow's kindness, right? But for the widow, what is her great and most important thing? It's her son, right? Right. And so when she meets Elijah, she's she's saying, I am – I mean, and, and she says, look, we got one more meal left and then we're going to die. And Elijah comes to her and says, yeah, you're right, you know, but I have a better option for you. If you will be willing to put that desire up on the altar, you can save both you and your son. Mm-hmm. If you'll if you'll serve the mission of the Lord first, not not you know you eat and then I get left over, but you give your first fruits in some sense of this conversation. You give the first fruits to the mission of the Lord by giving it to me, which sounds suspect. Immediately, all of my suspicions would have been up if I was her. Like, yep. go away, charlatan. Um, but she hears him make an offer, and here here it is. It's He's saying, look, if you do your plan, you're guaranteed to die, you and your son. But if you trust in the word of the Lord, I'm offering you the promise that that jar of flowers n- not going to run out. Right. The jug of oil is not going to go empty until the Lord comes and brings rain, at which point you're going to have food again. Yeah. And so there's some sense – it's it's almost like Pascal's wager, you know, mm-hmm. where he offers that in terms of salvation, where he says Pascal's wager goes like this. Like, okay, if we're wrong about faith, then you live a life following after the decrees of the Lord and you die. And let's say you're right. Okay, you still go to the grave. You haven't lost anything. Right, anything major. But if you're wrong, man, you have missed out on this massive inheritance, this salvation that the Lord has offered. Now there's flaws with Pascal's wager, but essentially what's what's behind Elijah is he's saying, Look, you're guaranteed to die. If you give first to the Lord, if you give your heart and trust him to save you. It's never going to run out. You right. and your son will be saved. I right. mean, it, it's in a sense, there's some salvation motif going on here. Sure, there is. And I think it's also, it's not just that, because because I think the temptation is to focus on she gave first. Well, mm-hmm. what she did first was show faith. Mm-hmm. What Elijah was saying to her was, I trust the Lord, yeah. have faith. The fact that she was asked to give something to him, food what. They could have been a different request. Under different circumstances, it could have been, listen, I need you to go over here and uh, water my camel, or I need you to go over mm-hmm. here. It's like it could have been some other thing. I'm just thinking of other examples of things where there was some, you know, God made some request of somebody that was 
odd or unusual mm-hmm. or distinctive. And in this case, it was he's asking her to show some faith. I know there's some people out there that will say, Sam, it's really easy to talk about giving to the Lord. If the Lord, if the Lord wants some stuff, let him just supply everything I need and mm-hmm. I'll be happy to give out of my abundance. Like that's not how it works. Yeah. It's not the God doesn't give you everything that you need and then enough to take care of what he needs. That's not how that's not there's no faith there then. It's like, okay, God, you want me to you want me to give a dollar? Give me a million dollars first and I'll give a dollar. <laughs> that's not how it works. And and yet he also didn't ask her for something that she didn't have. God doesn't ask you for something that you don't have. Sometimes it has to be something that he's going to supply to you. I get that. I've been there. I know how that is, you know, um, mm-hmm. that kind of a thing. But this really comes down to faith. I don't want to, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't get bogged down in the fact that, oh, she only had enough for this one little cake. Elijah was saying, trust the word of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And that would have been absolutely something that no one had ever seen before. You know, right. God, the Bible tells us that God creates out of nothing. Right. Right. He creates the universe out of nothing. And here he is taking this jar and out of nothing, he's creating this limitless supply. It's one of his calling cards. He brings life from death. He brings order from chaos. He, he fills uh, beauty with what was empty before. And so here, I mean, it, it, this is pointing your mind to a, you know, when God comes in the flesh and he takes five loaves and a couple of fish. And he's going to feed thousands, right? He mm-hmm. he can multiply the grain um, and the fish to feed. And you see the same God who is doing this for this widow shows up on a hill and feeds the multitudes later. Like this is what he does. He's yeah. not limited by our way of seeing resources. Um, and, you know, supply and demand, he's not constrained <laughs> by – by limited resources. He's the one who made all the resources we have. He's He can make more if he wants. So this is me reading between the lines again. <laughs> Do you think they kept this on the down low or were they making pizza crusts for the whole city? <laughs> you know, that would have been a very gospel thing to do. But I think this is on the down low. Okay. Like, I, I definitely don't get the impression that Elijah's thinking, hey, let's open up a food mart. <laughs> you, no. I'm thinking if I'm if I'm going to make, you know, like if I got a, a, some flour and oil that will never run out, I'm opening a bakery. This is going to yeah, be great. The profit margin here is going to be huge. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, what if it didn't cost you anything to make the donuts? Would you make them then? Uh, but I, I did I did kind of wonder about that only because hmm. I thought that would have been something that, first of all, it probably would have been the widow's natural impulse. Like, hey. Let's let's share. You know, mm-hmm. everybody's got it hard right now. You know, if the if the if you're if the Lord your God is taking care of us, let's let Him take care of a bunch of other people. And it, again, this is this is Mark reading between. The, if you if you really want to know fantastical speculation about what Scripture doesn't say, just ask me what I think. So, <laughs> really, you know, that would have been if that happened. If they had kind of supplied the needs of some people around them. That would have been a very notorious thing. And I'm just imagining in my mind now the hubbub. It's like, did you hear about over on the east side? Free bread as much as you want. Yeah, this man, this Yahweh, prophet of Yahweh, a guy named Elijah showed up. And now there's flour that never runs out. Hmm. And that gets back up to the king. And then word starts to travel by donkey or however it traveled back then to Jezebel saying, you're not going to believe what Elijah's doing over here right now in your hometown. 
you know, that kind of a thing. So, well, again, just to add on to it your speculation, say, it doesn't say any of that, you know, but I'm just imagining this in my right, head. Well, well, let me jump on to the speculative okay. bandwagon here. Get and on the speculation 15, train. There you go. And verse 15, it does say she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and then it doesn't say her son. It says her household. There you go. Which by yit in the Hebrew, it means your whole household, your huge, you know, your family, your extended family. So it might be. That she's bringing over the cousins and aunts and uncles. I don't know. It's a possibility. It's a weird way for it, for this to say she, the widow, he, Elijah, and her household. Why wouldn't it say her son? It's instead yeah. it chooses household. So maybe you're right. You maybe know, she did use this as a as a means to pull in some Baal worshipers and say, check this out. Yeah. <laughs> well, because she says, I'm going to prepare this meal for myself and my son that we – Myself and my son may eat it and die, and like you say, once the uh, once we've got the never-ending flour and and oil, it's like her household. I think that's a yeah. At any rate, that's I, cool. I good sp- catch. I speculate about these things. I I read them. You know, the, it, there's a lot of different things you could talk about with respect to Bible study. You know, there's lots of different ways. There's exegetical where you're breaking down the words, and and, and I love doing that. I'm, I you you know me. I love to talk yeah. about it's this Hebrew word, it's that Greek yeah. word. word. I'm a word nerd. But the other thing that I do is I've got a, a really fantastical imagination. I play role playing games. I play mm-hmm. MMOs and so forth. And so. I, I love in, that you play these scenarios out with Tracy reading. I did. I, I did. I actually I actually read the exchange between Obadiah and Elijah as if it was a sitcom thing. I'm doing voices back and forth, and she's laughing. She goes, somehow you've got to do that for everybody. I said, I don't know how we can. It's all written when they get it. So, yes, I amused my wife can, with that. I can totally picture that. Yeah. Well, that's just, yeah. But I am, but what I do is I put myself into the situation. I imagine myself there. I imagine the people and what they're doing and I, and I picture all of the stuff around it and I speculate. I wonder, is this what happens? What happened here? What, what do I think there? And when I was thinking about this, I'm thinking God sends Elijah into the heart of Baal territory, but not just any heart of Baal territory. He sends him to Sidon, where Jezebel's dad is the king, and he's going to rub their faces in it. It's like, hey, guess what? I stopped the rain. You all are starving, but my, I'm, look what I'm doing over here. But he did it far enough away from Jezebel that word (laughs) took some time to reach her, you know? So it's just, it's just one, I don't know. It's one of those things where I imagine that and it makes me laugh. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I think, that God has a a sense of humor and irony about certain. There's just some things that God does. Like if you've seen the duck-billed platypus, tell me God does not have a sense of humor. It's a fabulous animal, but it's to- you know there was a time when when you know biologists looked at that and said we got no idea. Yeah. <laughs> a duck saw an otter and they fell in love. I don't know, you know that kind of thing. So I think there are things where I just imagine again in my mind. The Lord is a God of laughter and mirth and joy. And I think there's probably up there he goes, hey, someday there's going to be these scientists that study these things. Watch this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, I, now we veered way off the track and I'm probably on the path to heresy. So I for, forgive me. <laughs> forgive but me. But you know, you know this, this celebratoriness of God, like when he comes and does a miracle. One of the things that you notice when Jesus comes is he never uses this 
to serve himself. Like he doesn't eat of the things he multiplies. He gives them away. Yes. He creates yes. this celebratory event. You know, when he when he turns water into wine, he he does it with sticks, six stone jars full, which would have been some insane number of wine bottles in today's equivalent, way more than they needed. But it's like there's there's this abundance, there's this celebratory festiveness that when God shows up and provides, he doesn't do it small scale. No. Um and and he does for for this woman and her son. He puts on a show. Yeah. Um, you know why do it this way unless he's encouraging her faith? You know, it's like, you know, we say, well, I wish he would do that for me. Yeah. And the reality is, what is what do you pray in the Lord's prayer? Right. You you pray, give us this day our daily bread. Right. And he's been faithful to do that. Like, I mean, he provides and, you know, it might not be out of a jar that's, that's running empty. Um, but he provides. He's, right. he's always faithful to meet us where we're at and to give us what we need, even sometimes when you <laughs> were nervous about how it's going to play out. Yeah. Um, you see that time and time again. I, and, you know, and in ways that we don't expect. And in this case, too, he there was a, a jar of flour and a jug of oil. So there was a limited amount of both mm-hmm. of these. So it was, to some extent, Sam, daily bread. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like they he didn't say, okay, the Lord is going to do this. Your These two rooms of your house are going to be full of enough flour to last us, and it's never going to go bad, and you're going to be able to look in there and see many months' worth of eating in there. No, what he does is he fills this jar and this jug over and over again. So every day there's new food, but there's just enough really to get through the day. So when my wife and I first met, she had she was coming back from the mission field, uh, where she was a missionary in Kiev, Ukraine, for three and a half years. And when we met, I think she had $90 to her name, which makes me want to start convulsing with <laughs> fear, right? And and when we started dating, we got married, and we'd look at our bank accounts, and everything was f- – in ministry as a teacher back then, our, our savings were just – my savings, I should say. We're flying – hers Hers went in like the first date. <laughs> But our savings just flying out the window, and I can remember saying to her, like, I'm pulling out the jars, right? And I'm looking at the levels, and I'm like, uh, this doesn't last us, you know, another two weeks. And she's like, I, you know, the Lord will provide. And that used to drive me crazy. Yeah. Like, no, there's this much jar. Let's look at the jars. Yep. <laughs> you know, this level, I don't see how this is going to work. And I, every time, you know, yep. every single time, the flower Came back. The yeah. oil filled up, yeah. and God took care of us. It's give, give us this day our daily bread. Yeah. You know? So, um, all right. So I don't. The next thing that happens here is such an, an amazing story. <laughs> um, it says that after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. He was dead. Mm-hmm. And she said to Elijah, "What have you against me?" O man of God, you have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, 
Let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Mm. (sighs) Where do you even begin with a story like this? Um, She says to him, What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance. That was kind of the, the, especially in pagan worship terms, it's like they were a little bit afraid of prophets. If Mm -hmm. a prophet of Baal showed up, it was considered a risky thing to hang out with a prophet of Baal because Mm -hmm. a prophet could pronounce a curse on you just as easy as he could pronounce a blessing on you. And and so prophets were kind of regarded as being a little dangerous, a little radical, a little out there. And I have to imagine that she's kind of thinking, I took you in. And, and look at this. You know, it's like you profit, you just can't have prophets around. This kind of thing happens. Did you ask your God to do this? Yeah. God's paying closer attention to me because you're in my house. Yeah. Great. You called attention to me. I don't like the spotlight. Now my son is dead. Mm-hmm. Um, so then he takes him into the upper chamber and laid him on his bed. He prays and he stretches himself out upon the child three times. What's, What's all that about? What's the, it, how do you how do you understand that symbolism there and what's going on? So you're you're going to see Elisha who replaces Elijah does something very similar when he raises the the Shunammite widow's son. Um and it says Elijah literally lays on top of him in a cruciform position, so arms stretched out to the side, feet extended with Elisha it says mouth to, to on top of mouth, eye to eye. And he's he's laying on top of this kid with body on top of body. It's a very strange thing when we read it, you know. And the fact that he does it three times is interesting, you know. This will be the very first resurrection in the Bible, physical resurrection that mm-hmm. we see in the Bible. And Elijah is the one with God's power who performs it, mm-hmm. and he does it in a way where he's he's stretched cruciform on top of this child. And three times he does this, crying out to the Lord, let this child's life come into him again. And one of the things that commentators, and I don't, I don't know the answer to this, but I'll tell you what I think is the most likely. In Baal worship, you had what was called uh, sympathetic magic. In other words, the prophets of Baal would act out what they wanted Baal to perform. Um, and so I'll give you a graphic example that's really disturbing, warning, I'm going to try to make this clean, but Baal worship is hard to make clean. Mm -hmm. Um, They would put these high places on hills, and then they would have, you know, the way that you worshiped Asherah, you'd go on top of the hill and you would engage a prostitute. Mm -hmm. And as you were inseminating the prostitute, this is called sympathetic magic, you wanted the gods, the gods of fertility who brought crops, to then bring the rain and one this is kind of gross but the one of the ways that they would see the rain coming down was that the gods were inseminating the earth to bring life out of the earth so rain coming down was inseminating the earth and so when elijah literally lays himself and his life over every aspect of this kid's life leg to leg arm to arm mouth to mouth eye to eye 
what he's doing is is he's calling it's a picture of this except he's reclaiming this idea of god sympathizing with humanity and he's saying bring life back to every aspect of this child and it would have been a familiar thing for this widow to see this is exactly what was going on except elijah is saying no 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 yahweh is the true god mm-hmm. baal is not going to respond asherah is not going to respond God, Yahweh, is the one who brings life. Um, and so that's my best guess is he's he's doing something that would have been culturally familiar for this woman mm-hmm. to make a point that Yahweh is the true God. Yeah. And I think it's also, you know, as, as we're imagining that scene, you know, he's in, like you say, in a cruciform position where there's death and then after three cycles of this, there's resurrection. Mm-hmm. You know, so – a son, and, and, a son will die on a cross, and after three days, there will be resurrection. Resurrection was the biggest deal to the early church. It's like it was the resurrection of Christ, a risen Savior. That was the thing. Yes, he died for me, and then he rose again. Um, and I think that there's times where uh, we get caught up a lot in the payment, and we don't we lose a little of the of the amazement and wonder and and mm-hmm. absolute awestruck dumbfounded at the resurrection yeah and the resurrection in baal worship not to get too history nerdy on on everybody but resurrection was really really important in the worship of baal you know you worship the storm god and if you, we found these the ugaritic tablets that told the story of of what these ancients believed. And the story of Baal is he's this god that kind of goes to war with the other gods to gain supremacy in the the pantheon of gods, and he defeats the sea god and does all these things. He builds a palace, and he's, you know, becoming this chief god, and he gets invited by the god Malt, who is the god of the underworld in Canaanite mythology. And so Baal accepts, and he goes down, and this god of the underworld traps him in a vice mm-hmm. of death. And so long as Baal is in the underworld, dead, there is no rain, right? But Anat, Baal's sister, comes and delivers him. She, you know, confronts Mutt, attacks him, uh, burns his body, which incidentally is eaten by birds, which so scavenger birds come and feed on him. So That's don't miss that. Yeah. Um, and then Baal is resurrected. And when he's resurrected, guess what happened? Oh, the rains come and there's life on the earth again. And so here comes Elijah and says, oh, your resurrected God is bringing life to the world, right, through rain? All right, watch this. Yahweh says, no rain. Yeah. And what's the message? Baal is not coming out of the grave. Your God is dead. How did they deal with the seasons? Did they figure this kept happening? Yeah, so it was <laughs> commemorative. Like Baal kept Baal kept accepting the invitation over and over again. <laughs> so know? it was commemorative to celebrate, as my guess. It's commemorative to to remember and celebrate what wow. had happened. And so every spring when the rains came, it was celebrating Baal's resurrection from Mot again. Yeah, it's crazy stuff, but it is. God, one of the things, you know, and, and this happens in all these stories. God judges the gods of Egypt. He's, he, he judges all these pagan gods through the ways that these stories happen. And it's, it's fascinating because when God does this, he's, he's allowing these stories to play out to where he's kind enough that the worshipers of Baal are getting a message. Oh my mm-hmm. goodness. Baal is dead. You know, 
all these similarities of their mythology now point to the fact that Yahweh is superior over Baal and mm-hmm. over Egyptian Ra and Osiris and all these pagan gods. He does that again and again. It's really wonderful. And he does it using the symbolism of that particular deity. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Hmm. Well, there is um, – I don't think there's any doubt that word would have gotten around – after this, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> by the yeah. way, I, I'm picturing now Ethbale, the dad, <clears throat> dear daughter, you won't believe what he did this time. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, you know, one of the things when you read this story, um, like, why, why did God let this boy die? And, and this is where, like, in a, in a very real and practical uh, discussion here like god allows this boy to die yeah he allows this and i mean immediately our fists kind of clench and we want to raise our fist to god and say this woman was doing something nice for you the boy was innocent yeah the boy right. was you know innocent she's she's serving you she's stepping out there in faith and then all of a sudden you take the son and he's dead and she's devastated and she doesn't know why this is happening and at the end, because we get to see the end of this story, we see the resurrection take place. And guess what? Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, it makes sense because this woman does not declare definitive faith until when? After the resurrection. After the resurrection. When yep. she says, oh, now I know that you're a man of God. Which, by the way, think of the centurions that are torturing Jesus, right? And whipping him and beating him and mocking him and spitting on him. It's not until the death and the earthquake and the ripped veil and everything else that the centurion looks up and says, this man, truly this man was the son of God. Right. Like, God uses these tragedies to show the fact that he overcomes them. And so when this woman is in her grief, God is not up there distant, you know, to her pain. He knows how this is going to play out, and he knows that it is going to take a resurrection to win her heart. Yeah. It is going to take this emergence of life from this crucible of death that will show her that he is faithful, that he is the one upon whom her hope should be placed. And so, like, I look at my life and your life, and I mean, without suffering tragic deaths and things like this, I can look at my life and see seasons where I raised a fist to God and, you know, screamed, why have you done this to me? And God used that very crucible to bring about some of the most precious things that are in my life today. Like I, I, the wife that I have, the four kids that I have, I have now because God took me through crucibles that brought me to the place where I found Laura and where we have kids. And all these blessings come on the other sides of these, these moments where life is really, really hard that are, they feel crushing. And you, you raise your fist to God and you say, you know, if you loved me, why would you do this to me? And I can look back at all of those seasons and go, man, you did that because you loved me. And you knew that was exactly what I needed then to get me to the place where I am now. And when you store up enough of those stories in your history, when you go to the next crucible and you can't figure out for the life of you what God is doing, you can look back and go, oh, yeah. You're a God of resurrection. You're going to use the most tragic of things, like the death of your own son, to bring about 
ultimate resurrection and ultimate victory and ultimate beauty. And I know that's who you are. Mm. And so I'm going to trust in it even when I can't make sense of it. Well, that is a good word, my friend. And we're going to let that stand as our last word on First Kings chapter 17. Uh, folks, we hope you've enjoyed your time with us today, as always, that it's been profitable for you, that you've gone through the study with us. We do invite you to uh, get caught up on the messages themselves. If you if you haven't been able to hear the messages, those are available. Desiring the Kingdom is the name of the series. Those are available at our website, riovistachurch.com, R-I-O-Vistachurch.com. Also in our Rio Vista Church smartphone app, if you go to the Apple App Store or to the Google Play Store and you search for Rio Vista Community Church, you'll find our app in there. You can also find Out of Water on our app and on our website, uh, riovistachurch.com slash out of water or slash podcast. Both work now. We've got a new, we've rolled out the new website. We've got two URLs. Um, You'll also (laughs) find it in the app or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts or on Spotify, everywhere that fine podcasts can be found. Um, We will be back next week with our special (laughs) 100th episode of Out of Water. Uh, that will be fun, uh, as well as First uh, Kings chapter 18. So Doesn't feel like 100 yet, does it? Um, I've edited no, Maybe for you. You have to edit them. I've, I've edited them all, <laughs> so yeah, it feels like 100 to me. But, uh, you know, it is, it's, it, it's just what I do. You know, I mean, I've got that rhythm. I'm an editor. I can, I can do these things. Well, hey, we'll talk about all of that as part of the 100th episode, which will be out next week. Awesome. Um, and we look forward to seeing all of you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. <laughs>